Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts today, although I'm making my way down to Washington over the next 24 hours. Although this is our usual Thursday podcast in which my co-host is Kavita Patel. Kavita is off this week. And so we're going to do a deep dive into all things legal, things having to do with the Supreme Court and other issues. Uh, And we're extremely excited to welcome two friends and people we admire. One, Dahlia Lithwick, who handles court and legal issues for Slate and is the host of the Amicus podcast. How are you today, Dahlia? I am okay. And also we are joined here by uh, Katie Barlow, who puts together the SCOTUS blog, and she also has a podcast called Words Matter. And we're very excited to welcome Words Matter onto the DSR network. We've always loved the perspective that Katie brings to the show, and we're very happy to support it moving forward. The show will release new episodes every week in the new year, but there's so much going on. The Supreme Court, we wanted to make sure you you wouldn't miss it. Uh, I think you've already done an episode this week focusing on that, and uh, there'll be more in advance of the relaunch of the podcast in January. So be sure to follow the Words Matter podcast wherever you listen to new episodes as they're released, and we'll talk about it on our DSR network website as well. Hi, Katie. Sorry for the very long introduction. There's always plenty to talk about with the court, and that seems to be true for the past two years nonstop, I'm sure, as Dahlia can tell you too, but I'm happy to be here and contribute at least a little. Well, I guess that's the first question for us, which is... How much longer will we be talking about the court as we, we have before uh, in the hearings that took place concerning the Mississippi abortion clinic case and the uh, future of Roe v. Wade? Justice Sonia Sotomayor talked about the stench that will settle on the court as it is increasingly seen as a political institution. 
is that unavoidable? And is the already falling reputation of the court likely to fall much further? Let me start with you, Katie. I think so. I mean, I think the fact that the public is talking about the court in the way that it is in public dialogue and things like a you know presidential commission on how we got here in the first place after a series of stalled nominations and, and the Trump administration successfully getting three Supreme Court justices on the bench, I think the public is paying much more attention. And so that stench is much more collective than it was for for court watchers, you know, in the past 10 years, let's say, or 20 years even, or even before Bush v. Gore. Um, and so with more people being more frustrated with the court and, and having eyes on the court and doing a deep dive in the court, I mean, I, I'm on a social media app called TikTok where students are more engaged about the Supreme Court than I even had any idea that they cared about. And so I think that that stench is coming from One, not enough understanding yet. People still need to learn more about the court and how it works and why it does what it does. And two, they're frustrated with the way that the court has moved in the past year. And it's not just the people inside the Beltway that have been talking about the court and DC and politics for a long time. It is a much broader audience. And I say audience too, because the Supreme Court has invited people in in the past two years since the pandemic. They've allowed live audio So more people can actually watch that part of our government at work. So more people are watching, more people are frustrated. And I think that that's only going to grow. What do you think, Dahlia? You you know, it's so interesting because for the last few years, I think I would probably say almost since the Mitch McConnell decision to blockade Merrick Garland and to hold that seat open for almost a year. I thought the moment that we are now in that Katie has so aptly described, which is the stench moment, right, where the poll numbers are in the 30s, they're lower than they've ever been in Gallup history, by huge margins, both Republicans and Democrats think the court is a political institution first and foremost. I thought when we got to that moment, the court would blink. And I think what's really interesting is that given the state of facts that Katie just described, given the polling numbers, the fact that the court's response has been like, stench me up, I don't care, not my problem, has been the real shock. And where I really saw that was in the Dobbs argument that you started with, where I really made the mistake of thinking, I was never a big believer. I mean, we can talk about this, in the 333 theory of the court, you know, that we had Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and Neil Gorsuch at the far right, and that they were going to, you know, make hay when the sun shines and they didn't care what the public thought. And then, you know, three liberals. And then this fanciful tale was told that the chief justice and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh were somehow the center and that they were, you know, moderate and they would care about the public esteem of the court and they'd care about the polling numbers and they would be inclined to go slow and to modulate what their instincts were because of public opinion. I was never all in on that project. I always thought it was not quite descriptively correct. But the fact that we saw last week a straight up six to three, we're going to do this. We may not even do it incrementally. We may just overturn Roe. We may just further embolden 
gun advocates. We're going to do SB8 on the shadow docket. That has surprised me. And so I guess what I would say is the state of the world that Katie describes, which is people are looking around, they're clocking what's happening. They realize that the court isn't this oracular temple on a hill. That's all happened and will continue to happen. I'm surprised that the court hasn't flinched. I think there's a natural tendency to look for a turning point, Katie. But as I think back on it, and I don't watch the court in the same way that you guys do, one turning point with regard to politicization, and and in some respects, the first turning point I remember was the Bork confirmation hearings, where the Democrats politicized it and really created this mood. We then had the Thomas confirmation hearings. We then had Bush v. Gore. We had Citizens United. We had Shelby County. We've had the Merrick Garland nomination debacle. And we've then seen three appointments, one more dubious than the next, both in terms of credentials and in terms of the way they were rushed in. So, you know, the way I look at it, this is a 35 year descent. Do you agree, Katie, or am I missing something? No, I think it's fair to tie it back to Bork and the politicization of the confirmation hearings. I wasn't covering the court at that point, but I do know my history a bit. And I think that, you know, looking at how people are paying attention to it in the last 35 years is informing how we talk about the court, but it's not changing much necessarily. And what I think now the question is, okay, here we are. And, you know, President Trump successfully got three justices on the court. Perhaps we'll see a Breyer retirement and a Biden confirmation. But even if the court were to gut or overturn Roe v. Wade in June, I'm not at all confident that there would be any further political maneuvering or politicization done by the Democrats to move the ball any. I'm not sure that this we can sit here and talk about it. And this has been a 35 year journey that we're on, but I'm not sure that it's going to change much. Um, certainly not for now. And, and we can talk about the report that just came out. You know, the Biden administration had this commission of 36 very smart individuals who released a 300 page book report on how we got here. And it put the ball, you know, Biden used that to put off dealing with the issue of the Supreme Court. And now the ball is back in his court of whether he's going to do anything about it. And I think the answer pretty plainly is so far, no. So it's just interesting to me that this has been a buildup for 35 years and you could read the tea leaves even before the Trump administration. Yet here we are, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere or changing anything um, in part because who is in the White House? But, you know, Dahlia, you know, having put out the 35 year timeline, We tend to talk about the court like some people on the court tend to talk about the Constitution, which is as though it were semi-theological in origin and, you know, above reproach. And, And yet there's never really been a protracted period in the history of the court where it wasn't politicized. And Lincoln was accused of packing the court. and. Thomas Jefferson couldn't stand the Supreme Court chief justice, who was actually his cousin, John Marshall. And they were constantly involved in battles where where Jefferson was trying to undermine the court. 
maybe our expectations are are too high, Dahlia? I think that one of the paradoxes of this gig uh, as a Supreme Court watcher for two decades is that there's this absolute necessary suspension of disbelief. You can't do this job if you think that the court is, to use Amy Coney Barrett's locution, a bunch of partisan hacks. You have to believe it's something different. And you're totally right, descriptively, that throughout history, the court has been a bunch of partisan hacks. Uh, That's the game. You have to pretend it is something other. And it's funny because when you look at the judicial ethics rules, the judicial ethics rules are pretty thin, particularly as applied, by the way, to the Supreme Court. They're just advisory. There's no way to enforce them. But it's all about really perpetuating this illusion, you know, this fantasy that Clarence Thomas described it as his hearings as, you know, you're a runner before a race and you're stripped down and everything you were before is gone. Chief Justice Roberts at his hearing, probably most famously, was like, oh, we're just umpires. We call balls and strikes. That's a bunch of bunkum. We all know that. That's just that's just so ridiculous. We're not children. But I think that the bargain from the founding was that we were going to try to believe that and the justices were going to try to comport themselves in alignment with that belief. And I just think that bargain has worked better at some times, worse at other times. We've had periods in history where the court was derangedly politically activist. We've had the court pull back from that kind of activism, maybe most famously after FDR's court packing proposal, where the court just stopped behaving in a partisan way because they knew the nation was watching. After the book, The Brethren came out, there was another period where the court was like, oh my God, America has now like seen us be pantsed and we look terrible. And so they modulate what they do. But I think it's just really important to understand on the one hand, the court has always been a completely political body. And on the other hand, its work is to aspire to not look like that. And our work is to buy into the ridiculous princess in the pea fairy tale that they are made of magic. And it's such a crazy bargain for a nation of sort of savvy, sophisticated thinkers, but that's the bargain. And I guess. That's a long way of answering your question, which is, of course, the court is political. It's always been political. But what it isn't is demonstrably cavalier about that. And that's why I think it's really illuminating that the speeches after those tanking poll numbers we talked about were not Amy Coney Barrett, Stephen Breyer, Clarence Thomas, and most famously Sam Alito coming out and saying, oh, we're not political. It was, we blame the press. The press is making us look political because that's a way of deflecting. It's a way of saying, we're magic. You should believe we're magic. And those lying reporters are the ones who are distorting the picture. But I just think it's really important to understand this is kind of the dance and it's kind of pathetic. It's (laughs) just really you know, the way you talk about the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but this is the dance. It's always been the dance. I Um, will add that a part of what's baked into the dance, the dance floor, so to speak, is also this very strange 
notion with the press that they have limited access to the court and the public has limited access to the court. And even members of the press are hesitant in how and what they say, because the information that they receive is controlled by the public information office, which is in turn controlled by the justices in deciding who gets what, when, which is also how you define politics, who gets what, when, and how. So the press is kind of at the beck and call of the court and the courts, the team who works for the court and the public information office and and how we describe it and buying into this bargain is part of that because you don't get a seat at the table. Literally, you do not get a hard pass in that room unless you are a part of that ecosystem that is developed and is dependent on information that comes directly from their public information office. There is no open access to the public. There have been more and more questions you know, around this in the course of the past few years, where because, as Dahlia noted, the ethics rules are essentially non-existent for the Supreme Court, scrutiny is the only thing that could protect us. If there, if there was any kind of, of scrutiny, and yet we don't know what the deal was with Justice Kennedy when he left, and we know there was a strong conflict of interest between his son's role at Deutsche Bank and President Trump. We don't know who you know, paid off Kavanaugh's debts. We don't know a lot of the backstory that, frankly, we would know if they were seeking to become Assistant Secretary of State for you know, knives and forks. There would be a lot more scrutiny. Do you think the mood in the press, Dahlia, is likely to change on this? Or are we going to, you know, continue to honor what you describe as the magic? I think both. I just want to point out just to Katie's point about how much we bought into the magic for years and years and years. If you got a transcript from the Supreme Court, they wouldn't name the justice who is talking. It would just say the court. And the press was like, cool, I won't know, you know, if it was Blackman talking or if it was Douglas talking, it doesn't matter. They're the same person. And the press corps colluded in that. I mean, they were just like, I guess it was just the court. And I think that what I see is tiny inching, mincing steps toward being a little less credulous and a little bit less inclined to say, well, you know, they're just nine brains and vats and they're perfect and they're all the same and they're just calling balls and strikes. And the best evidence that I saw of the press corps kind of refusing to collude, Katie, check me if this is wrong, but this was the first term where I thought the curtain raisers, the first Monday of October pieces, were really political this year. This was the first year in my time covering the court where people led with the polling numbers. They led with the Barrett speech and the Clarence Thomas speech and the idea that the court was deeply anxious about its own legitimacy. And then, by the way, we're hearing guns and we're hearing abortion and we may be hearing affirmative action and we're going to dismantle the administrative state. But I was really actually very surprised at how even the regular press corps felt like their coverage of the opening of term was very inflected, if not with overt partisan politics, at least with the very political lens that, holy cow, this is a political institution that is panicking about how it is seen. And that felt really different to me. Maybe I'm overstating it. I don't know. I would say you're right. And there's a very interesting back and forth that's happening either between the press or the public or both and the court that we've seen just in the past few months. 
So we saw Justice Barrett give the speech where she said, my job is to convince you we're not a bunch of partisan hacks. No one was given the heads up about that speech. We weren't in the room for that speech. And then Alito was going to go give a similar speech. And I had literally booked my ticket on my own dime to go see the speech because it wasn't open to the public. And I, I had the time and I was like in the privilege, the immense privilege to be able to go do it. So I was like, I'm going. And then at the last minute after there was a lot of public commentary, Alito opened it up and there was a live stream. Although after that, the live stream got taken down and you weren't technically allowed to record it. Nevertheless. And then also we saw, and I know Dahlia, you talked about this on Amicus, but there we also saw during the Dobbs case, this whole portion of oral argument that was about the court asking about its own legitimacy and not just on the left. Of course, the liberal justices talked about it too, but you know, Justice Kavanaugh brought it up and, and a number of justices talked about what do we do here you know, if we overrule this 50-year-long precedent and what, what happens to the legitimacy of the court if we start doing something like that. And it was odd to ask the advocates about the court's own legitimacy. And so I think there is this public conversation that's happening and, and perhaps the court is a little more receptive to what we're doing. Oh, and the third thing is adding the Texas abortion case to, a, you know, a sped up docket. We went from granting that case to oral argument in that case in 10 days, it was, I'm sure, incredibly difficult to be a lawyer on that case, but it happened. And they proved that they were able to grapple with a, an incredibly difficult issue quickly and efficiently, although we're still waiting on the opinion. And so the fact that the court did that on the back end of this whole conversation about call it the shadow docket versus call it the emergency docket, and we are doing things in secret, they are at least reacting or responding in several ways, whether it's opening up the speech, whether it's speeding up a case and putting it on the regular docket, whether it's talking about it during oral argument. And I find that fascinating. It is fascinating, but the mythification continues to be a, a problem. I didn't mention it, but, but we also could discuss the role that Justice Thomas's wife played in, in funding the January 6th uprising, which one would think was an issue, might be in another court, in another kind of a setting. But now, you know, we, we, we do have some discussion about changing the court. And the president of the United States created a commission to look at changing the court. And every indication that I've seen suggests that the starting assumption of this commission is that they're buying into the magic and that they can't change certain things because actually the court was created on top of Mount Sinai by God. And, you know, so what's your outlook? Is this just an exercise? Was this just a bone Biden was throwing to people who said, you've got to add people to the court and is just going to sink into the DC swamp without producing any change, Dahlia? Katie's exactly right. I think when Biden was pressed around the time that Amy Coney Barrett was hustled onto the court after voting had already begun in the 2020 election and people were starting to clock what she describes, you know, this years long project that they kind of sort of missed. And Biden's response was, I'm going to do something about court packing. I'm really going to think about it. And the response was this blue ribbon, you know, incredibly prestigious commission that wrapped up its work this week. And it was clearly an effort to kick the can down the road. It was clearly an effort to say, 
I'm going to think about thinking about thinking about this, and I'm going to task a bunch of really smart people to do the thinking. And it was very clear, by the way, I thought it was interesting in the meeting of the commissioners, they were really explicit, like we were not asked to make a recommendation either. We were not even asked to recommend outcomes. We were essentially, a book report is exactly the right word. We were really asked to amass all the arguments on both sides. And let us be clear, we're super bipartisan. And let us be clear, we're really, really bipartisan. I thought they were very, in presenting the report, they were more delighted with the process than the outcome. We could work together across ideological divisions was kind of the point. Look at what we modeled for America. And to their credit, we don't see nearly enough of that. I don't want to take away from that. But I think when you open with, we're not tasked with making recommendations. And your larger point, which is, we start from the presumption that anxiety about legitimacy of the court is going to inform this entire conversation. And we don't want to do anything that delegitimizes the court. Then, of course, the inevitable outcome is do nothing, right? Now, there is a huge difference between the draft report that we saw early in the fall that really aired on the side of do nothing, do nothing, do nothing. Like we can't do anything to disturb public opinion and reverence for the court. And I certainly think the final report was a lot less in the key of freaking out about legitimacy. But I just think that when you start from the proposition, A, that we're just amassing scholarship and B, we're not supposed to make a recommendation what you get is exactly what you got, which is like very interesting scholarship. But do I think Biden takes this and runs to like institute a court packing plan? Oh, hell no. That was never on the table. And I think in a deeper way, when I had higher hopes for the commission, I thought at minimum it would engage a big rollicking public conversation that might move the goalpost so that we could at least talk about structural reform. And I think maybe term limits, that's happened a little bit. There's been some public movement on term limits. But on the idea of expanding the court, I don't have any reason to believe that the existence of that commission and its research has allowed people to really play with, think about, experiment with how that would feel. I I, I see no evidence. So if that was kind of the point, was to inject this into the bloodstream of the public to talk about it. I'm not sure that that was a success. Katie, we've just got a couple minutes before we take our break. But listening to all of this, it seems to me, and this is a recurring theme across Washington, that there is no threat to our institutions of justice like institutionalists whether it's the ones who speak of sort of the magical beginnings that can never be changed even if their interpretations are wrong or it's the ones who say we can't change anything while the people who have embraced political scorched earth policies are perfectly happy to change it anytime they want so do you fear the institutionalists have the upper hand well, I, i'm not sure that they do on the supreme court i think there is enough i mean if you look at dobbs for example i think the institutionalist sat alone in that oral argument. And that was the chief. Uh, And I think there are probably five votes. Dahlia may disagree here. I think there are probably five votes to maybe overturn Roe or at least carve out a a big chunk of Roe, which is a state's ability to ban abortion before 24 weeks. 
So I'm not sure that that is much of an issue for the Supreme Court. There was some, to Dahlia's point, there was some talk about it being a 3-3-3 court and that Kavanaugh and Barrett were equally, not equally, but somewhat institutionalist in inclination as the chief. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think Justice Brett Kavanaugh was perhaps the fourth vote to actually grant the Dobbs case, which would put him out of the institutionalist camp, I think, based on some of the questions that he asked. So no, I mean, I don't think that that is the problem. I think that if there were a couple more on the court, as we have seen Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts do in the past, they might keep the status quo at least a little bit more. But I think the problem is now and what Democrats have to grapple with is the fact that when the institutionalist on the court is not enough. Well, let us pause there because I, I think the natural next thing to do is to talk a little bit about where this all leads. But we'll do that in the bonus portion of our content. We take a pause here for those who are listening to us free of charge to go on with your lives. And uh, thank you for joining us. And if you want to know more of what we've got going, including what uh, is coming next for Words Matter on the DSR Network, then go to the dsrnetwork.com and you will be able to find more on that. For those of you who are members, stand by. You'll get to hear the rest of this podcast. And if you're not a member, this would be a good time to go become one. It's like roughly the cost of uh, a latte per month. And, uh, and it helps us do what we're doing. We'd be real grateful if you would do it. So for now, thanks to those of you who are leaving us. And for the rest of you, we'll be back in a moment. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current LA Times legal affairs columnist, and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.